Well, a couple of years ago, before I broke up with Twitter because of our unhealthy relationship, uh, I saw a tweet by uh, Pastor Greg Laurie. If you don't know who Greg Laurie is, he's a prominent pastor in Southern California. Of course, this was in 2019, but in his tweet, he mentioned that some 8,670 people gave their lives to Christ over a three-night evangelistic event called The Harvest. Now, this event that is held in stadiums has been going on for years. But on this particular year, it was a bit of an anomaly because there was over 100,000 people in attendance. According to CBN News, the first night of the event brought 28,000 people with 2,100 people making a decision to follow Jesus. And that was just the first night. The second night brought 34,000 people with 2,675 people making decisions to follow Jesus. And then finally, the third and the biggest night for attenders rose to 38,000 people with more than 3,895 people deciding to follow Jesus. That's a whole lot of converted people in one weekend. Now, when I hear these numbers of all of these folks following Jesus, I'm amazed. I'm overwhelmed by these decisions, but if I'm being honest, I'm also a bit suspicious. Now, listen, I'm originally from Southern California, if you don't know that. Uh, I've been in Portland now for 11 years, but I'm an OG LA kid, okay? So I'm well acquainted with the ministry of the harvest, and I'm very thankful for the ministry of Greg Laurie, for his zeal and for his passion to see people come to Jesus. But because I'm from Southern California and have attended these events on multiple occasions, I have a unique vantage point. I've witnessed firsthand these people who have made decisions to follow Jesus at this specific event. I've seen the tears and the raised hands. I've, I've, I've heard the prayers along with the minor and moody chords that persuade people as, as they slowly walk down from the bleachers onto the field as they dedicate their life to Christ. And as the invitation comes to its crescendo, I've seen the Jumbotron screen broadcast in bold and bright letters, welcome to the family of God. Now, I know people personally who in the moment were so moved by the message and the music and the massive crowd that they responded in a way that looked very much like a genuine conversion. But only after a few weeks when the emotions of the moment fade and the sentimentalism passes, they snap back into their sinful and self-centered lives as if their conversion to Christ was nothing more than a spontaneous, irrational, and regretful decision. So how does this happen? How does someone make a radical commitment to follow Jesus? How do they make a decision to dedicate their life to Jesus and then only in a matter of months decide that that's not really their deal anymore? It's not important to them. Or better yet, how does a conversion to Christ not bring about any meaningful or lasting change? I mean, that's what the word conversion means, right? To change. Well, brothers and sisters, I'm convinced that part of the problem is we live in a culture oriented around decision-making and not disciple-making. In fact, over the last 30, 40 years, the larger evangelical world has built a decision-making machine or instead of pushing people into the sobering and biblical realities of true discipleship, of what it means to actually follow Jesus, 
We've instead created a machine that's built on easy believism, manipulative messages, shallow altar calls, and sinners' prayers that offer a cheap assurance of salvation, where people share to an unbelieving world things like, all you have to do is repeat this prayer after me, and you will be saved. Now, rest assured, there is a conversion that occurs when someone prays a prayer like this, but it's not a guaranteed conversion to Christianity. It's not a guaranteed conversion to a lifetime of loyalty and love and obedience to Jesus. And if it's not a conversion to Christianity, at minimum, it's a conversion to self-delusion. And far worse, it's a conversion to false assurance. Listen, decisions for Christ does not equal a conversion to Christ. And one of the sad realities of these decision-making machines and the people who put an emphasis on making decisions over and against making disciples is that they realize the machine doesn't work. Obviously, they know that. But they continue to pipe people through the machine anyway. Now, why do they do that? Maybe they feel like they're making some ministry progress. Or maybe they do it because rapid results with impressive numbers look far better on a ministry resume than a few long-term real results. But this is dangerous, and this is reckless. And I would submit to you this morning that the culture of decision-making that has become exceedingly popular in the last couple of decades is one of the reasons why we're seeing such a, a massive increase in deconversion stories in the church. I mean, this is happening almost daily if you're looking for it. I mean, they have websites. They even have master classes on deconversion, which caters to people who have become disenchanted with their decision to follow Jesus. This epidemic of deconversion in the church, I think, is inextricably connected to the culture of decision-making. Now, to be clear, this isn't to suggest that God doesn't sometimes use the broken machine to produce real results. He does. Praise be to God that he's in the business of using broken people like you and I and broken machines to bring about his greater redemptive purposes, which really just points to the fact that conversion is first and foremost a mighty and powerful work of God. But you can be confident that if God chooses to convert someone, that person will be converted, no matter what the method or what the machine. But just because conversion is first and foremost a divine work of God doesn't mean that we don't have a part in the process. It doesn't mean that we're not responsible in the process or that we don't call other people to be responsible for their part in the process. So conversion is a divine work of God, but it requires human work as well. And that work is far greater than an in-the-moment, emotional, one-time decision. Now, I want to be completely clear here, okay? Because most of us who have more of a reformed soteriology or, or an understanding of salvation, we get triggered when we hear the word work in the same sentence as salvation. So just chill, okay? <laughs> it's okay. Salvation is a gift from God, okay? To be clear, regeneration 
is in every way God's divine and unaided work. God does everything. We do nothing. We are passive participants in the process. As Michael Lawrence said last night, God initiates. He turns our hearts of stone into hearts of flesh, and he makes us receptive, sensitive, in order that we might respond to him. And therein lies the human responsibility part, that we respond to him. Responding requires human effort, human agency. The question then is, what are the components of conversion that we are called to participate in? What is our response? Well, to answer that question, we only need to look to God's word. In the Gospel of Mark, the very first chapter, verses 14 and 15, we get this beautiful and concise punchy statement from Jesus as to the kind of work we are to do. Mark 1, 14 through 15. Now after John, that is John the Baptist, was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now just to set some context here, the, this statement from Jesus in Mark's account is a bit of a screenshot of Jesus's first public ministry. Mark accounts that this is, is Jesus' first sermon. And what is the content of the very first sermon in Jesus' public ministry? The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. God's renovating work, renewing work in humanity has cracked in to our world. Therefore, repent and believe in the gospel. And you see, it's here where we, we get this picture of human responsibility in the work of conversion, but we also see the key components to an authentic conversion. If we are to follow Jesus, our work is responding by repentance and faith. Now, God grants the gift of repentance and faith, and that can sometimes be confusing. So I'd like to submit to you that God grants the ability to repent and believe. Without his help, we can't do it. Dead people can't make decisions. So then if conversion demands or necessitates repentance and faith, which God allows us, enables us to do, then we probably got to know exactly what those things are, right? So let's begin first by unpacking repentance. The term repentance means to turn around, or to return, I like that, return, to move in the opposite direction of where you're going and head back, okay? But it's more comprehensive than just turning. It is the act of turning away from your current pursuit of self, sin, idolatry, and rebellion and turning towards God in faith. My man J.I. Packer says it like this, repentance is a change of mind and heart, a new life of denying self and serving the Savior as king in self's place. That's weighty. So there is this turning away from the love of self and turning back to the love of God. And this is something we don't often think about when it comes to repentance. As humans, we were made, we were created by God, but not created for nothing. We were created by God to know him and to love him. We were made to have this perfect, connected relationship with God. 
where he loves us and we love him without interruption. But because of our unfaithfulness to God, we turned away from the God we were made to love and we loved ourselves. And it is this love of self that drives all of our sin, all of our idolatry, and all of our rebellion. And so for humanity to get back to God, to live in this loyal, loving, and connected relationship with God requires turning away from the love of self, the love of sin, the love of idolatry, and the love of rebellion, and turning back to God. So I would submit to you this morning, if we have not turned away from the love of sin, the love of our idols, the love of the world, and the love of self, and we have not returned back to God, then we have not repented. Acts 3.19, I love the way this is stated. Repent, therefore, and turn back. And turn back that your sins may be blotted out. 1 Thessalonians 1.9 says, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols, those things in our heart that we love so much, to serve, that is to adore, to have devotion for, to, uh, to live for the true and living God. So then real repentance is a reorientation of our love, our worship, and our devotion, moving away from the idols of our heart and putting our love in its proper place. This is why the, the spiritually sensitive scribe asks Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus responds by quoting the Old Testament, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength and your neighbor as yourself. The greatest commandment, Jesus said, is, is a total love and devotion to God. Why does Jesus emphasize a complete love for God as the greatest commandment? Because if we love God completely, with this all-encompassing love that there will be no other room for superficial loves, for the loves that lead us away from God, the loves that are expressed in sin and idolatry. Repentance is to have a non-compete clause in the contract of your heart to say that there is no other love, including the love of self that sits above or competes with God. If you do that, it is to be fundamentally breaking your contract with God. And you see, this then should change the way you see your sin. You should see your sin and the seriousness of it not only as law-breaking, though that is a massive part of your sin. You should first and foremost see your sin as an act of unfaithfulness to the God you were made to love. Choosing our sin over the love of God. When real conversion takes place in the life of a person, when God is genuinely at work, then it will be marked by a consistent turning from sin and a consistent returning to God in love and obedience. This is the kind of change that the Bible speaks to when it comes to conversion. But Jesus doesn't simply call us to repentance. It's not enough to simply turn. You also have to have faith. Jesus says, repent and believe in the gospel. That is to have faith. Hebrews 11.6 says, and without faith, it is impossible to please him for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So faith is required for conversion. 
Having faith or turning in faith necessitates first and foremost a belief in God. But faith is not just an intellectual assent to the existence of God or the, the, the historical facts concerning God. Because there's countless people in the world who believe that God exists, but choose not to love and obey God. I mean, we heard this last night, James 2, 19. Even the demons believe. Oh, you believe God exists? Great. So what? The demons believe in. They shudder. So faith is not simply believing in the existence of a God. There must be a belief in the triune God and in the person and work of Jesus as the only way back to God. Salvation. And you see, this eradicates the idea that is so prevalent in our culture that, you know, all paths lead to God. That it doesn't matter how you Apple map it if you ultimately end at the same destination. But that is not true. Faith is believing in the exclusivity of Jesus for salvation. Now, listen, this is huge in the Pacific Northwest. One of the things I love about Portland is the pluralistic nature of Portland. And the reason why I love that is because it means that people are willing to have conversations about God. They're, they're, they're less offended by you presenting your opinions concerning how you think and feel about God. They'll respectfully listen. They'll even discuss it with you. They'll, they'll chop it up with you. And I would even go so far as to say they're okay with Jesus. But there's always this defining moment this shift in attitude and openness in the, in the conversation. And that's when you try to take Jesus from the back pocket with all their other gods that they're cool with and move Jesus to the front pocket where he is exclusive. That's when they're no longer okay with you. That's when you're intolerant. But you see, this is what saving faith requires. Belief in the exclusivity of Jesus as the only way of salvation. Faith requires that you trust and have confidence in who God is and what he's done for humanity in the person and work of Jesus Christ through his gospel. And more than that, faith is to be tethered to the reality of God's promise-keeping nature. It is to completely trust that what God says about himself is true and that what he says in his word is right and that his gospel is sufficient to save sinners like you and me. That Jesus alone is the only one who can appease the wrath of God for all the wickedness of this world, the wickedness that we contribute to in this wicked world. Faith is trusting in the promise that whosoever believes in him will not experience this wrath, but have eternal life. It is to trust so completely in Jesus and his gospel that you're willing to bank your life on it and that you're willing to lose your life for it. Denying yourself, dying to self in love, loyalty, and obedience to him. This is the work that God requires in conversion, repentance, and faith. They're two sides of the same coin. Just as God's work in conversion and our work in conversion is two sides of the same coin. God's saving sovereignty and man's human responsibility to repent and believe. They work together. Both repentance and faith are gifts from God. 
Don't get it twisted. But they are both required of you by God. Don't get that twisted. To be sure, the work of God calls us into this conversion, brings us into it. We hide in it. To be sure that that conversion is a decision, but it's not a one-and-done decision. It's a life of decisions. It's daily repenting, daily turning away from your sins and turning back to God in love and in faith, putting to death the things that compete with our love, our loyalty, and our, and our obedience to God, daily trusting in the promises of a saving work, and daily turning and trusting that he will carry us to completion. And this, brothers and sisters, should greatly shape the way you live your life. And this should greatly shape the way you help other Christians live their life and baby Christians live their life. To be a follower of Jesus means you got to work. You got to work. God has provided everything necessary for you to do the work. Now, this process is a process, which means we have to be patient with people. we got to be patient. For some people, done. I love those people. <laughs> Low maintenance. But for others, like myself, it was a long and hard process, and I'm thankful for the other men in my life that were patient with me when I was crazy. So to be sure, God does the work of conversion. He gives us the gift of repentance and faith. He supernaturally changes men and women. Sit in that reality for a second. He supernaturally does the work so that we might connect the dots and connect the implications. And if the Spirit is at work, then we will work. But perhaps the most beautiful part of this diamond doctrine of conversion is that he calls us to participate in the work, in both the drama and the dance of daily turning and trusting so that, there's a reason, so that we as humans can fully experience both God's deep and mysterious love for us and so that we might experience this inexpressible joy of loving God Finally, loving God, the one we were made for, the one we were made to love, God brings us in to that process. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we do pray that as we survey this most magnificent work, this triune work, of the love of the Father who sends Jesus, who does the work and the spirit that draws us and enables us to have faith and to repent. We pray, O oh Lord and God, that this would not just be data points today, that we would just not hear doctrine, but that our hearts would be radically moved in deep devotion as a result of the work that you do and the work that you call us to. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen.